Romans 15 this morning. We're going to attempt to cover quite a bit of ground today and uh, make it through this chapter. When talking about the, the effects of the gospel, what does the gospel produce in the lives of those who receive it? And it does have a number of different products in our lives. The gospel spurs us on to loving one another in, in self-sacrificing ways that we never could have done before. Uh, giving of ourselves toward others that, in a way that, that never would have happened in us prior to uh, Christ coming in radically transforming our lives. Uh, the gospel and, and the indwelling Holy Spirit that comes as a result of it it enables us to understand the Word of God and to understand that our lives are not our own, that we were bought with a price and that we've been given a mission, as Matt was just talking about, that goes far beyond ourselves. As Rick Warren wrote several years ago in his famous book, it's not about you. That's what the gospel leads us toward and helps us to understand. And we're going to talk some more about that mission this morning. As we talk today about the call of the gospel. And we talk a lot about callings in the church today. Uh, folks will say, well, I'm, I'm called to the ministry. I'm called to be a missionary. I'm called to work with children. I'm called to go to this place or that place. And, and we tend to have this thought about a call from God as if there are a, a few select few that have this special calling and then there's everybody else. But then you begin to look into the Scriptures and actually see what the Scriptures say. And yes, there are those who are called to be pastors and teachers, Ephesians chapter 4. There, there are those who are called to go out as missionaries, like the Apostle Paul right here in Romans chapter 15. There are some particular callings like that. But by and large, when you, when you hear the word calling, when you think about the calling that God has placed upon our lives as believers... It is every believer. It is not just a select few that we call pastors or, or missionaries or, or youth ministers. It, it is every believer has been given an, a call from God. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, if you are abiding in Him today, if you've put your trust in Him as Lord and Savior of your life, the day that He called you to salvation, He called you to mission. Now, somewhere along the line, we miss that. Somewhere along the line in American Christianity, we created an unbiblical version of the Christian faith where I was blessed by God with salvation, period. And that should have been, I was blessed by God with salvation, comma, there's more to the story. Or better yet, I like the little ellipsis, those three little period things that happen sometimes, like the end of the Star Wars credits. You have the ellipsis that says the show's getting ready to start. That is how our salvation should be for us, church. That not I was saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ through His blood poured out of the cross, period. But ellipsis, there's more to the story. This faith calls us to mission. So let's talk about that mission today. It comes in three parts that are demonstrated right here in Romans 15. The Apostle Paul is really laying out for us his life's mission, which by implication there are pieces and parts. Not that we're going to be called to do exactly what Paul did. 
Don't misunderstand. Not all of us will be called to take the gospel to unreached people groups as Paul did, well, but some of us will be. See, we automatically assume that if our calling isn't exactly like Paul's was or exactly like the pastor's is or exactly like the youth minister's is, that we don't have a calling. All of our callings are similar in these three ways. Let me show you what these are. First of all, the gospel calls us all to go. The gospel calls us all to go. And I could not say this any better than Tim Keller does when he says Christianity is a missional faith. Christianity is a missional faith, and it contains within its own message the motive for sharing it. And again, somehow we've missed this. Somehow we put a period where there should have been an ellipsis. Somehow we received a blessing, and we forgot that all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, when God blessed our ancestor Abraham, we, we for our spiritual ancestor Abraham, we forgot, we forgot somehow that we were never meant to be a container of blessing, but a conduit of it. That the blessing was never intended for us and us alone. It was intended that we would then share that blessing to the uttermost parts of the earth. And by that blessing, I mean this great salvation in which we reside. If you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you know Him as Lord and Savior, He has called you not just out of the darkness of your sin and not just into His marvelous light. He has called you to live your life on mission for Him. Now, you may never go to Africa. See, that's what I thought when I first experienced the call of God on my life as a teenager. I thought I had two options. I could either be a pastor, which was the last thing in the world that I ever wanted to do. Yes, God has a great sense of humor. He really does. If you, if you have not yet experienced God's sense of humor, you don't know him well enough. He is really funny in that way. But I figured you either had to be a pastor or I had to head for Africa. And Africa seemed better than what I'm doing now. And church, just to be really bluntly honest, sometimes Africa still seems better than what I'm doing now. No offense to those here in the room. Our faith is a missional faith. It calls us to go, but it calls us to go in some particular ways. If you miss this part of the calling that Christ has on your life, just going to the mission field will not fulfill this calling. You can go and do the deed. You can go and speak the word. You can go and preach the gospel. But if you don't have these tools in your repertoire, if you don't have these three crucial pieces that he lays out here in verses 14 through 21, it will be all for nothing. And so let me show you what you need. First of all, we go as a priestly squadron. We go as a priestly squadron. We, we believe in what's called the priesthood of the believer, which means we no longer need a, like an Old Testament priest to intercede between us and God. This is a glorious truth. You don't need your pastor as an intercessor between you and God. In fact, the Bible says there is only one intercessor between God and man. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that you need. So you no longer have to go to a priest in order to pray to God. You no longer have to go to a priest in order to confess your sins. Now, there is a glorious truth about confessing our sins to one another and finding healing in that. That's a glorious truth. But it's not a necessity for your forgiveness. 
So we find here, we go out as a priestly squadron, and you look at what the Apostle Paul, how he describes his mission. He says in verse 15, On some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Now, when do you need a reminder? When you've forgotten something. Some of you have that little reminder app on your phone. Man, that thing is so handy. In fact, I want to tell you, church, there's a way that you can help your pastor. If you need me to remember something, if you, especially on Sunday morning, so many of you come to me and say, hey, will you remember to pray for me? I'm doing, or you remember this is going on, you know, these different things. If you'll just say this to your pastor, say, pastor, would you put that in your phone? You will not offend me. As my wife will tell you, I am utterly forgetful, and Sunday morning is the worst of times for that. I, I can tell you, I won't remember past Taco Bell what you told me. It's just not going to happen. Because I'm going to have a Sunday afternoon nap, and it's going to be gone. And it's not because I don't love you. It's because my brain is deficient. But I've found, I have found, <laughs> yeah, she thinks that's really funny. I have found, though, that when I put that reminder in my phone, guess what it does? It beeps at me. And it says, hey, remember, Tuesday at noon, so-so's having surgery. Remember, they asked you to be at, at, this, uh, at this event. They, they wanted you to come and do this, uh, and, I, and it will remind me, and, and then I'll be there, unless I'm providentially hindered. But if I don't put it in my phone, I'm not going to be reminded. And that's, that's really what Paul's saying. He's saying, it's not that you don't know. It's not that you don't know these things. Church, there is not going to be, I don't believe there will be anything in the message this morning that you're just going to go mind blown. Like I never knew that before. It's all going to be a reminder. And so much of what we do here on Sunday mornings, so much of what we do here on Sunday mornings is this, it's a reminder. It's not that you don't know, it's that you need that ding. It's that you need that reminder to spur you on in what you already know. So by way of reminder, because of the grace of God given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus. Now, there are multiple words in the New Testament that can be translated minister. Uh, some are like the word diakonos, from which we get the idea of deacons. Deacons are ministers. They're, they are servants to the church. That's the Greek word diakonos. Uh, there's a Greek word doulos, which means a bond servant, someone who is, who is sold into servitude to repay a debt. That's not the word here. This Greek word actually is the word from which we get the English word liturgy. Now, that's, that's not a word that we use in our Baptist churches very often. But our Presbyterian brothers and sisters and, and, and others use the term liturgy to describe the ordering of worship in their churches. It's like the worship order. Liturgy, what we do in worship and what we do to worship God. And so take that idea and look at what Paul says. He says, that I, my desire has been to become a liturgy toward Jesus Christ. My whole life being an act of worship unto the Lord. But go keep reading. To become a minister, a liturgy of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. That was his main focus group. In the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable. So he's using Old Testament language here. Now, in the Old Testament, when you talk about the Old Testament priests, the Old Testament priests offered up two main kinds of sacrifices. And most of you in the room, you already know this. They, they offered up primarily, when we think about Old Testament sacrifices, we think about, first of all, the sin offering. 
We think about the blood of bulls and goats being shed and, and lambs being shed as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. We think about the day of atonement when that high priest, one day of the year, would take the blood of the lamb into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat of God so that the sins of the people might be forgiven. It's a beautiful picture of that Old Testament sin offering. But the other kinds of offering, the other main uh, category of offerings that were offered in the Old Testament days that we don't often think about were the thanksgiving offerings. So you had sin offerings that were meant to, to make atonement for sin, but you also had these thanksgiving offerings. For instance, when a baby was born, that they would go and they would bring a thanksgiving offering before the Lord for the birth of that child. When, when they experienced a great blessing from God at harvest time each year, they would bring a, a thanksgiving offering before the Lord. And there are multiple different types of thanksgiving offerings for various kinds uh, of occurrences in life and various times throughout the year. They would simply come and worship God in this way because they were thankful. As we bring those two offerings, the sin offering and the thanksgiving offering into the New Testament day, here's what we need to understand. First of all, we no longer make a sin offering. It's already been made. What Jesus Christ did at the cross was the full and final sin offering. There is no more sin offering to be made. And in fact, the book of Hebrews says if we even tried to do that, it's like we're crucifying Christ all over again. There is no sin offering yet to be made. It's already been, Jesus said, it's been paid in full. Praise be to God. This is what sends us on mission, that we are a people who have been set free by the gospel. Our debt has been paid in full. The sin offering has been done once for all. By the way, all those bloody sacrifices in the Old Testament never made true atonement for even one sin. They were merely looking forward to the one who would make atonement for all sin. It's a beautiful picture. So we no longer make sin offerings, but church, we still make thanksgiving offerings. We still come before the Lord with sacrifices of praise unto His name. We sing songs to Him as a sacrifice of worship, of thanksgiving, not seeking to cover our sin, but giving thanks for the one who did. We give of our tithes and offerings not to somehow make atonement for our guilt, but to give thanks to the one who did. Everything we do in worship in this place, everything you do in worship tomorrow, everything you do as your life is Godward directed, this is a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. Praise be to God. You no longer ever have to worry about making atonement for your sin. You couldn't even if you tried. He's already done it. And yet He does require of us that Thanksgiving offering. And we're going to see some pictures of that as we continue. But here was Paul's Thanksgiving offering. The Gentiles. You see, we find the Apostle Paul, before he was known as Paul, in Acts chapter 9, and he was a man on a mission. But his mission was not the one he describes here in, in Romans chapter 15. He was on a mission to destroy anyone who was following Jesus Christ. He had letters, he had papers that authorized him to imprison, to persecute, and even to kill those who belonged to followers of this thing called the way. You know, Jesus said, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Those early believers took up that, that saying and said, we're the way. 
We're the followers of the way. We're the ones who are walking in the way. And the Apostle Paul set out to destroy all those who are of this way. But on the road to Damascus, a light shone from heaven and blinded him. And a voice spoke and said, Saul, Saul, that was his name before he became Paul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice from heaven said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And you're not going to persecute anymore. I'm going to take the persecutor and turn him into a preacher. I'm going to take the one who's seeking to destroy my people and I'm going to use him to deliver my people. And I'm going to send you, Paul, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. i got enough dudes already going to the Jews. Praise be to God for guys like Peter and James and John. i got enough guys already going to the Jews. I'm calling you out to go to the Gentiles. And church, we are sitting right here today in 21st century America, standing on the shoulders of a giant named the Apostle Paul, who was radically changed on the road to Damascus, went on mission with the Lord rather than against the Lord, and we are recipients of God's grace through him. And so what was his message? This priestly service... This offering of the Gentiles to God is a thanksgiving offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Then look at verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then he says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Isn't that a glorious thing? Another place, Paul said, I will not boast about anything but what Jesus has done. This was the greatest missionary who has ever lived on the face of the earth. He propelled the kingdom of God forward through his preaching. He sent the gospel to the uttermost ends of the earth as far as they knew it in that day. And yet he says, I will not boast about any of it. I'm not going to write books with my name on the cover, he says. It's all about what Jesus has done. It's all about what Christ has accomplished. It's the very thing that Martin Luther, hundreds of years later, would write. He said, we always, we preach always Him. It's the same message every Sunday. For some of you, if if you're getting in that place where you think, is is the pastor ever going to talk about anything else? Gosh, I hope not. I hope that there will never be anything else to preach about. As Martin Luther said, this may seem a limited and monotonous subject, likely to be soon exhausted, but we are never at the end of it. I want to tell you, church, the day that this pastor stops preaching Jesus, please never come back to this church again. Or find yourself a better pastor who's going to preach Jesus. He is the subject and the source of everything that needs to be preached. You do not need from this pulpit biblical moralism. You don't need me to tell you how to be good boys and nice girls. That's not going to merit anything for you. You don't need me to give you top ten lists about how to raise your children well. Go read Dr. Oz for that if you want to. Don't read Dr. Oz, by the way. He doesn't know. The Bible is more than sufficient for that. You don't need me just to give you life principles to teach you how to have your best life now. Here's the cue. If you're walking with Jesus, you will never have your best life now. He is, a way, he is saving it up for you in glory. 
He is saving up for you something greater than you will ever have in this life. And the moment that you seek to find those eternal things in the here and now, you will find rash disappointment. And I hope that you walk in daily disappointment with the things of this world because it will drive you back to the cross. It will drive you back to Christ. So we go as a priestly squadron going out to bring an offering of thanksgiving to God through our service to Him. Secondly, we go in the power of the Spirit. This is so crucial. Man, you try to accomplish this mission on your own, you're done for. There is not a bit of this mission that Christ has put upon the lives of believers that you can do in your own power. And if you even try, if you even try to do it in your own power, you will find yourself sorely defeated. I think that's the problem in so much of what's happening in the American church today and in so many of our individual lives. We are seeking to follow after Jesus in our own power using our own resources and not resting in the resources that He has already indwelt us with. He has already given us the Spirit. He has already given us the power. He has already enabled us for everything He has called us to do. And yet we so often lean back into our own resources. could say more about that, but let's go on. And we go with the promises of of the scripture we go with the promises of the scripture god has never believe we hear this god has never called you to anything that he has not also equipped you for and so when you get fearful about that next step of faith that he's calling you to take scripture say his perfect love drives out fear when you get anxious about what you know God is calling you to do in your workplace in terms of sharing the gospel with your coworkers, there is no need for anxiety. He's got this. When you get in that place where you think there's no way that I can do this, Lord, you're right in the right spot. It's in that dependence upon Him that He continually comes through. And we have these promises of Scripture, even wrapped up in our mission. We all know the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. We, all, we hear this all the time, and we always begin the Great Commission with, Go ye therefore. But we start a sentence too late. Did you know that the Great Commission actually starts not with, Go ye therefore, it actually starts right here. Last words of Jesus before he's going to be sent back into the, the throne room of heaven and be seated at the right hand of God. Last words of Jesus about our mission. He starts this way. Not go ye therefore. He starts here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's both a truth and a promise, church. Don't miss that. That's both a truth and a promise. He said, all authority has been given to me Go ye therefore. See, if you miss the first part, the go ye therefore is never going to merit a whole lot. It's never going to produce anything. It's going to be go ye therefore in your own power. Now he's saying, all power has been given to me, and I'm the one sending you out. I'm the king who is sending you out as ambassadors of the kingdom. I'm the one who's sending you out with the message of the gospel. All authority has been given to me. And the inference is the one who's sending you out has all authority to accomplish the mission. All authority has been given to me. And then we know the middle part. 
Go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We know that part, and we get fixated on that part, and we get overwhelmed by that part, but don't miss the brackets. All authority has been given to me, and look at the last bracket, and behold, listen, pay attention, don't miss this part. I'm with you always to the end of the age. You're not going on your own. When you step out in faith, you are not stepping out on your own. He says multiple times in the Scriptures, I will never leave you or forsake you. Why does he have to keep repeating that? Because we need the ding. Some of us might ought to put that in our phones. Daily, we might not have put that promise in our phone when he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Behold, I'm with you always. Good times and bad. Sickness and health. In your home and on the mission field. In the darkest of days and the brightest. I'm with you always to the very end of this age. And what will mark the end of this age in which we live? It'll be marked by when the gospel is proclaimed to all the nations. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. So the gospel, it calls us to go, but to go in these spirit-empowered, Christ-directed ways. Secondly, the gospel calls us to give. Now, I'm going to meddle a little bit this morning. You're just going to have to get over it. The gospel calls us, compels us, moves us into giving. The gospel calls us to give. Why? Why does the gospel call us to give? Let me give you three reasons. First of all, we give to advance the mission. We give to advance the mission. Paul says here in these verses, verses 22 through 24, I want to come to you at Rome. I want to come to you, church, at Rome. That's my next stopping point. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and then I want to come to you at Rome. But I don't want to come to Rome just so I can see all the great architecture. What does he say? I'm going to come, I'm going to make a pit stop at Rome, and then I'm going to ask you to send me on to Spain. Now, Spain doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but in those days, they considered Spain the very end of the world. Think about your geography. Spain, on the very end of Europe, they considered Spain to be the uttermost parts of the earth. Where did that come from? Acts 1-8, when Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And when Paul heard that, when Paul heard the uttermost parts of the earth, what did he think? Spain. I want to get to Spain. And so he says to the believers at Rome, I've longed to come to you for many years. I've wanted to come see the gospel at work in the city of Rome, the very center of Roman culture. I've wanted to come see the gospel at work in Rome, but I'm just going to make a pit stop there. And I'm going to move on from there into Spain, and you're going to help me. He kind of asks, but he kind of doesn't. He basically says, I'm going to come and you're going to enable me to move on into Spain with the gospel. We give to advance the mission. This morning, when you place those dollars in the offering plate, whether it was a few or many, I want you to understand where a portion of that goes right in the life of our own church. A portion of that money that you gave this morning will go to support Matt and Shan Reynolds, who are missionaries in the country of India. We're going to talk more about India before we finish this morning. 
Matt and Shannon are ministering in a culture that is largely devoid of the gospel. Millions upon millions of folks living in the country of India who have little to no access to the gospel that we revel in week by week. They don't have a Bible in their own language. There are cultural barriers that keep them from even being able to understand what we're talking about when we share Jesus. But every week, you empower Matt and Shannon Reynolds to go to unreached peoples in India. It's a beautiful thing. Every week in the offering plate, when you give monies, you empower a man named Abdiel, who is a missionary in the country of Cuba, a country that was not too long ago completely closed to the gospel, and yet Abdiel, as, as a native of Cuba, is able to live and to minister there, to train youth ministers in the country of Cuba, where right now there is a youth revival happening in Cuba, a country that many of us only know of as the place where baseball players come from. There is a youth revival happening in Cuba and you have the opportunity to be a part of it week by week as you give. For $250 a month, we support Abdiel, his wife, and his little girl. $250 a month. What many of us in this room spend going out to eat in an average month, we are supporting a family who is extending the gospel in the country of Cuba. Just a few weeks back, we had Pastor Reuben from Belize here, and, and our hearts have been tied in with the work there in Orange Walk and now in San Pablo, Belize. And as we give, we are empowering the work that's happening there of extending the gospel in the country of Belize. And beyond that, we give to an organization known as the International Mission Board, which is comprised of over 5,000 missionaries. And their primary goal around the world is taking the gospel to places where it's never been heard. It's, a, it's an Apostle Paul-type ministry that they are going out to the places where those who have never heard the gospel, that they might hear, that they might have a Bible in their own language, that they might hear of the one name given under heaven by which we might be saved, that they might know that there is a God who loves them so much that He gave His one and only Son that they might have life in Him. They go, and we empower it through our giving. Thank you, church. Thank you for being a church that gives to missions. And here's what we so often hear. And I'm just going to tell you, this, this statement so breaks my heart. We hear things like, well, why would we go to India? Why would we give to India? Aren't there enough lost people here? Aren't there enough needs in Breckenridge County? Don't we, shouldn't we be taking care of our own before we go to the other side of the world? Now, you've heard me say, even from this pulpit, I believe we have no business going to the other side of the world with the gospel if we're not going to be faithful proclaimers of it here. Where did Jesus start the mission? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's hometown. That's Breckenridge <laughs> County for us. You're going to be my witnesses right here at home first. That's where it's going to start. But he would not allow them to remain in that place. And dispersed by persecution, they went to the next place, into Judea, into the outer line. That would be like the state of Kentucky for us. They were dispersed into the outlying areas. From there, they were dispersed into places like Samaria, where none of them would have wanted to go. Nobody wanted to go through Samaria. Jesus himself, when the disciples were, were traveling up north, that he decided to go through Samaria. And they were like, what are you doing, Jesus? Nobody goes to Samaria. That's the wrong side of the tracks, Jesus. But he had a mission in Samaria. There was a woman at a well in Samaria that he had to meet up with. 
And later he would send this deacon named Philip to start a revival in Samaria. You can read about it in Acts chapter 8. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And when the Apostle Paul heard that, he thought, Spain. I want to go to Spain. You see, by the grace of God, the Apostle Paul dreamed dreams that were much larger than himself. The truth of the matter is, we don't know whether the Apostle Paul ever actually made it to Spain or not. You read the book of Acts, the story of the missionary endeavors. The last half of Acts is all about the Apostle Paul's mission. It ends with him making it to Rome. It ends with him getting to the pit stop. We don't know whether he ever actually made it to Spain, but we know this, the gospel he preached did. The gospel that he preached did, and his heart's desire, his great dream, his great vision was to make it to the ends of the earth in his own generation. And whether or not he ever made it there physically, his gospel certainly did. But I will say this. For those who would say, why go to the ends of the earth when there's so much need right here? I love the way we see the Apostle Paul answering that question. Look at verses 25 and 26. He's wanting to go to Rome, then on to Spain, but he's got something that needs to happen first. Verse 25. At present, however, Paul writes, I am going to Jerusalem. I'm going back to home base. I'm going back to hometown. I'm going back to where it all began. For what purpose? Bringing aid to the saints, bringing aid to the believers, bringing a financial gift. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, in other words, in the spiritual blessings first given to the Jews, salvation was first for the Jews, and then it came to the Gentiles like us. If they've come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them, to the Jews, in material blessings. By the way, I love the fact that the Bible never draws a hard line between spiritual things and material things. He says, you Gentiles, you benefited from the spiritual blessing first given to the Jews. Now return the favor by meeting their material needs. It's a beautiful thing that God has not divided body from spirit, but that both are meant to glorify Him. And that's what we see happening here. So we give not only to advance the mission, but we also give to aid the poor. So yes, we give to advance the mission around the world, but church, don't also forget, don't miss this point. We also give to aid the poor right here in our midst, right here in our hometown. It's not an either-or. That's what so often happens with those who would say, why go to India when we've got lost people here? Why do, we, why do we need to go to Africa when we've got needs right here at home? And the Bible is not saying to you, choose one or the other. The Bible is saying God has called you to both. And so you have no business going to India if you're not going to be faithful with the gospel here. But at the same time, God's called you to India. It's not a cop-out. That's how we use it. We say, well, I can't go to India. I've not even been a faithful proclaimer here. That is no cop-out. There is no loophole. The gospel that saved you is the gospel that calls you. That calls you to be faithful here and around the world. So we give to advance the mission. We give to aid the poor. And thirdly, we give to amend 
the debt. And I think these verses point us back to chapter 13 where we talked about, remember that love debt? When we talked about two debts in the Christian life uh, that we cannot pay. You cannot pay your sin debt. Praise be to God, Jesus did that. You cannot pay your sin debt, nor can you pay off your love debt. Now, we, so many of us spend so much of our lives trying to pay the sin debt, trying to cover our shame, trying to make restitution for the wrongs that we've done, and where Jesus has said, I paid it all. You no longer have to keep trying to pay that old sin debt. You'll never do it. It's been paid in full. Rest in my grace. And instead, spend your life paying the love debt. Paying that love debt that you will continually owe. You will make payments on it all the days of your life and that you'll continue to owe this debt. But it's a debt that's paid in grace, not in shame. It's a debt that is paid in acts of love, not in acts of contrition. It is a, a debt, and we amend that debt. We make payments on that debt, as the Apostle Paul speaks about here. He says... When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them, delivered to the Jews of Jerusalem what's been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. That's his vision. I'm headed to Spain, folks. Ends of the earth. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Interestingly enough, how did the Apostle Paul finally make it to Rome? Doesn't look like blessing. Read the book of Acts. Last three chapters of Acts, we find the Apostle Paul does end up showing up in Rome, but he's in chains. He's in chains. What happened at Jerusalem ended up causing him to be imprisoned. He's put on a ship headed for Rome. He's shipwrecked. And by the time he makes it to Rome, which was his heart's desire, he was there in chains. And yet the fullness of the blessing of Christ was upon him. You see, how can you be fully blessed and be in chains? That's the mystery of the gospel. He was so full of joy. He was given in that moment a mission that he didn't even know he could possibly have. As the guards of Caesar himself became those who were watching over the Apostle Paul. That's what's recounted. That the very guards who watched after Caesar on their off hours were put watching after the Apostle Paul. And guess what he was doing? Witnessing to every one of them. Every one of those guys who were put over him and would the next day go to uh, serve and guard and look after Caesar, the king of the world, the most powerful man on the planet at that time, they were sitting with this guy named Paul and he was sharing the gospel with them and some of them were coming to faith. And within 150 years, the Roman Empire would be flipped on its head by this thing called Christianity, by these followers of the way, by this very little guy named the Apostle Paul who saw fit in every circumstance, whether free or in chains, whether at home or abroad, whether in comfort or in agony, he was going to proclaim Christ. He was going to point people to the cross. He was going to be on mission. He himself wrote, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's an agricultural metaphor. You go out into the field this spring and throw a few seeds in the ground, you're not going to get much. 
sow bountifully. You sow hundreds, thousands of seeds so that you might reap bountifully. So that's been my goal, to sow bountifully, to spread the seed all around. Each one must give in his heart as he has decided, not reluctantly under a compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so we go and we give, not out of duty or blind obligation, but out of hearts that have been radically changed by Christ. Because we've been transformed by the renewing of our mind, because we've become these living sacrifices, we go and we give. And finally, the gospel calls us to pray. I don't want to spend long talking about prayer. I want to spend more of our time actually praying today. That's been one of the things I think we have been so guilty of in our churches. We talk a lot about prayer and we do very little of it. But let me show you three things about this kind of praying that will empower us for gospel missions. First of all, we pray trusting in the Trinity. Look at verse 30. This is so powerful. The word Trinity is never used in the Scriptures, and yet God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are all over the place. And they're right here. As Paul says, pray for me in my mission. Look at what he says. I appeal to you, brothers. I beg you. I urge you. Please, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the second person of the Trinity, by the love of the Spirit, by the third person of the Trinity, to strive together with me in your prayers to God, the implication to God the Father on my behalf. He's saying, pray in light of the fact that all three persons of the triune God are hearing your prayers and are answering your prayers on my behalf. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they are actively engaged when God's people pray. That'll change the way you pray, church. That'll get rid of our weak little sissy prayers that we throw up. God, just bless with this one, be with this one. No, we'll begin to pray in power when we understand that the God of the universe, the one who sent us on the mission, has called us as the crucial component of that mission to be a people of prayer. We pray trusting in the Trinity. We pray wrestling with the worldly. That word he used there, strive is a word used in, in the athletic sphere in that day. It was a word that wrestlers used when they wrestled with, with one another. He's saying, let your prayer be like a wrestling. Let your prayer be like a wrestling that you are striving, that you're running hard after, that you're pursuing these things. No weak, lackadaisical prayers. Run after the Lord. Wrestle with Him. It's like Jacob wrestling with God in the Old Testament. May that be how our prayer life is. Knowing that His desire before we even ask is to bless us so that we can be a blessing. Remember what Jacob prayed? I'm not going to let you go, God, until you bless me. May that be the kind of praying we do, but let us remember the promise given to Abraham's, or to Jacob's grandfather, to, the, to, to Abraham. The promise was, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. You were never meant to be a container of God's blessing, merely a conduit of it. We pray wrestling with the worldly. And I want to say this, it's not just the worldly out there, church. As your pastor, I confess before you today, so much of my praying is wrestling with the worldly that's right here. We pray and ask God to change our affections because we love the things of this world too much. Because we're all together too comfortable. Because we've grown weary in doing good. 
and grown satisfied in that which will never bring eternal satisfaction. Finally, we pray banking on the blessing. He's already promised the blessing, church. The blessing of His presence, the blessing of the success of this mission is not a question of whether this mission will succeed. That's never been an issue. It's not a question of whether this mission of the gospel to reach people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will succeed. That's not an issue. What is at issue is what part will you play in it? So we pray banking on the blessing. And he prays, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And here's the greatest blessing. Beyond material wealth, beyond anything that he could give us, verse 33 is the blessing. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That's the blessing, church. Don't ever forget the greatest blessing is his presence. That the God of peace is with you. He is living in you. He is putting new affections in your heart that will produce a new word from your lips. He's teaching you how to walk with Him in a way that you never could do before, no matter how hard you tried. And so many of us, we spent so much of our life trying to be the good boy and the nice girl, trying to live a biblical morality without realizing that that was never the point. That the law was always given to point us to our need for a Savior, not to find satisfaction in ourselves. To rest in His righteousness, not our own. And so Paul says, pray for me, brothers. Pray that this mission might go forward. Pray that I would be faithful to it. As he says in Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. You know, anything about the Apostle Paul and you think, did they really need to pray for his boldness? Yes. He was bold because they prayed. He said, pray for me. Pray for my boldness to keep proclaiming. He, He never once said, pray for my safety. Didn't say, pray for my deliverance from my enemies. He said, pray for my boldness that whether I'm in chains or free, the gospel will come forth from my lips. Paul's mission was to reach the unreached peoples of the world, to go to the Gentile nations where Christ had not yet been proclaimed. 